I think that it's so easy to forget the intuitive and to forget the human aspect of the business. Think about every touch point that you're having with your customer as being, is creating more trust, creating more meaning. I think we need to serve children globally in early childhood. There is so much white space. There is so much need. So since children are children everywhere, we have a global opportunity. Welcome to Secret Leaders. Today, I'm joined by Jessica Rolf, the CEO and co-founder of Love Every. After Jessica's first business, Happy Family, was acquired in 2012, she was inspired from observing her children's interactions with toys and sought to provide parents with the tools and confidence to support their child's development needs at every stage. From that, Love Every was born. The company has raised over $32 million from investors, including Maveron, Google Ventures, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, and Reach Capital, and in 2021, raised $100 million in their Series C round. The brand has received awards from Parents' Choice and Red Dot and has been featured on Time's Best Inventions and Fast Company's World Changing Ideas. We're huge Love Every fans in our household with playmats, adorable cards, and toys for our toddler to express her emotions, and even a working toy kitchen with a sink and washing up station. So I'm excited to talk with her today as her brand is taking over my house every bit as much as Paddington, Paw Patrol, and Peppa Pig are. Jessica, welcome to Secret Leaders. Oh, Dan, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here, especially with you as a parent. Parent and customer. Happy customer. Jessica, I don't know exactly where to start with you because there's so many different angles. Um, I think what, as soon as you told me that you're calling from Boise, Idaho, I'm just curious enough to know why. Let's start there. Like, why do you live where you live? Yeah, great question. I was born in Minnesota in the Midwest, and I've lived in New York City and San Francisco and Austin. And my husband got a job in Boise, Idaho, and we just kind of thought it was the next stop in our adventure. So we moved straight from Manhattan um, to Boise. And it was, it's been a real joy to raise children here and to build a company here, build multiple companies here. So I feel really grateful to be here. But a lot of people in America call it a flyover state. Idaho is, they think it's sort of in the Midwest. It's not, it's close to the West Coast. Um, so yeah, it's great. Do you think there's lots of advantages of being somewhere maybe uh, counterintuitive? Like, you know, outside of the typical like San Francisco, LA or New York scene? Yeah, I think before the pandemic, we were worried, my co-founder Rod and I were worried that raising capital was going to be difficult. So we did look at moving to the Bay Area or even Austin or Seattle um, instead of you know having to be in New York, LA, San Francisco. We felt like maybe we could go to one layer out um, city. But we learned that, frankly, we were able to, we just decided that we wanted to take a bet and live here. It's such a great lifestyle. It's a great place to raise children. It's a really wonderful backdrop for an intense life. And we were able to make it work with capital raises. We did a lot of traveling and, you know, and then now with the pandemic, post-pandemic, it's been uh, much more accepted that entrepreneurs are going to build their companies in tertiary markets. And why are you an entrepreneur? Tell me a little bit about your background growing up. Oh, you know, I was not the kid that had the really lucrative lemonade stand. I was not, uh, you know, selling something, creating things. These businesses, and frankly, with happy family and love every these are the only two businesses that i've ever been a part of co-creating and so for me it's about just deep purpose in life and what i want to bring to the world and with happy family my first company that i co-founded 
Um, my partner had an idea to do something fresh with baby food, and I thought that it was a brilliant idea. It felt like all the you know baby foods was jarred and processed, and it seemed like there needed to be an alternative. And so, co-founded that company with her, and we ended up really scaling the business. It was learned a lot of hard lessons along the way, but were successful. And then when I had my children. I felt so good about what they were eating, but I didn't understand what was going on with their development. And so it's really coming from a very deep purpose of a place that I wanted to give back to other families what I had, the insights that I had gained from reading white papers on brain development and exploring different different products. I realized I was so confident as a parent, I wanted to share that confidence with others. So talking about parents, what were your parents like? How do you remember your childhood and your relationship as a child to your parents? Oh, that's such a nice question. I'm very close to my parents. My mom is actually visiting today, so she's in town. And my parents divorced when I was three. And my parents got, there was joint custody was awarded to to my parents. And so I spent half the time with my mom and half the time with my dad and would go back and forth every, every few weeks or every few days. There was a whole calendar. And it was legislated to the day. There's 365 days in the year. There was always a half day that was, you know, split between my two parents. And I was their only child from that marriage. And so I think for me, I just felt like there was a lot of love poured into me. And even though I had um, a, a family with you know two different, I had two different experiences. On the one hand, I grew up with my mom, my grandma, and my grandpa. And on the other hand, I grew up with my dad, my stepmom, my younger half-brother who was disabled, and then my stepbrother, my stepsister. So I had kind of very rich family experiences, but there was just a ton of love. So... It's interesting. You're not the first person uh, to talk to me. It's very commonly thought of as, you know, divorce being such a traumatic, of course, it's a traumatic experience, but a traumatic reality in people's childhood. And then I've actually got some friends who are divorced and really close because they've got kids really close and do it really well and make sure the kid is so much love. And it's fascinating because you can, in many ways, see it works really well for the parents. They get half their time exactly to themselves, which means that the half the time they're with their kids, they're so all in and focused on the kid, which is something that you can actually take accidentally for granted as a couple who's together, full-time parenting together. And it was really interesting for me recently, like having these conversations with people who were divorced and understanding that um, there can be upsides in some of those things too, in terms of how you're loved and the attention that you get from both parents. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't actually thought about it precisely that way, but I think you're absolutely right. I think that there, I felt so much love and so much attention. I talk to my parents all the time still, feel very close to them. And I think it's because it was a priority when I was with them, as opposed to I'm in a marriage now with our three children and it is hard to be present. There's just a lot happening all the time. And so you know, finding those times where you can really be grounded and be present, I think is so important. I also think, you know, for parenting, some of the experts have said anywhere between, you know, 60 to 80% right, just get it mostly right. And I think that children are resilient and they do get through um, challenges. And I know that for my parents, it was a difficult divorce, but I didn't really experience that internally. I just wanted to, I felt love from both of them. So what, made you I mean obviously you did baby organic baby food products so I understand like what made you go into that you're probably going to say being a mum but you know what specifically drove you towards entrepreneurship you know let's dig into that a little bit like not everyone is like 
oh, I don't like these products for my kids. You know, most people just deal with that. Not everyone goes and starts a business solving that problem and working their ass off and having a really difficult time doing it. So tell us a little bit about your journey and why you started it. Well, surprisingly, I did not have children when I co-founded the company, baby food company with my partner, and she also did not have children. So that was really quite an interesting wrinkle or layer. And I would say that there's probably a lot of parents who have been dissatisfied with baby food or with formula or different categories for a long time, but they have little kids that they're raising and they have they don't have enough time to take care of that problem and, and really make it into a business. For me, I've always been driven by this purpose of how do you think about business as a tool for good in society? How do you think about using business as a platform for change and for positive um, experiences, both for the employees, but also in the products that you deliver, but then also how you make the products? And so for me, I was very inspired by people like uh, in America, there's an entrepreneur called Seth, named Seth Goldman, and he created Honest Tea. And there's another entrepreneur that was in the food industry, Gary Hirschberg, who created Stonyfield Farm, or Anita Roddick, and you know, in the, in the UK, creating the Body Shop. There was a whole study of entrepreneurs that were emerging, maybe 30 years ago or more, that were building businesses from a deep purpose. And I was so inspired by that. I loved the pace of business. I loved the excitement of building a company and the concept, you know, that being an entrepreneur is so exciting, but I also wanted to have meaning in my life. And so I was so grateful to have met my co-founder for my first business. And she had this idea to do fresh baby food and that felt purposeful. It was organic. Uh, right now, almost 40% of all baby food consumed is organic, and it was only 3% of baby food consumed is organic when we first started. And when between Happy Family and Love Every, I created a climate collaborative with the natural products industry. And so there's just a lot around environmental impact, around health impacts that we can make a difference with the right foods at the right times in life. So that was sort of my, my reason for pursuing Happy Family. And what did you give up? So at the time, no kids, but not currently an entrepreneur. That's your first business. So how old were you? Take us back to that time in your life. Like what were the choices going through your mind? You could have done that or you could have done something else. What was the crossroads and how did it feel like getting stuck into a problem like this? Yeah, so I ended up doing, uh, went to business school. So I had really wanted to do this intersection between business and social change felt so driven to to make a life um, with that with that purpose and was kind of scanning and like thinking about what kind of company we could create and uh, and I say we and it was actually my my husband now husband at the time he had an idea to do a food line that was focused on cancer prevention in partnership with the Lance Armstrong Foundation he had a friend there and they, so we put all, all of our heart and our soul into creating this, this nonprofit, but it was kind of like Newman's own model. And so in business school, we were writing up case study, you know, the, the business model and the business plan. And we met with the Lance Armstrong Foundation. We're like, we really believe this could be so meaningful. And it was at the same time that they were minting money from those yellow bracelets, you know, those plastic bracelets that people get. And the yellow bracelet campaign was so successful, they were like, we don't need to take a risk and start a company related to food and cancer prevention. That sounds too hard. And so I found myself coming up for air and really wondering, okay, what is it going to be? I love the food industry. I love the organic food industry. I believe in food as purposeful health. And so I had uh, 
was in business school and I had just graduated and I took a job at Whole Foods. And I was working in Whole Foods Market, thinking that I could maybe find a path in the natural products industry. And uh, I got connected to a woman uh, that was a uh, person who did sampling for a company called Adwala. And I so I would give out samples at, at, at a table and, and give out samples of this Adwala. And she knew this other woman, Shazi, and she said, I think you two should know each other. And so we connected as co-founders and... Um, Shazi told me the idea for her company and her vision for what she wanted to create. And I said, let's let's join forces and do this together. And so at the time, I had a job that was making $80,000 a year, which was a big deal for me. I had graduated from business school. I um, had my parents were very excited and proud of me. I was living in an apartment with um, two roommates. And so I was saving money. And it had been barely a year. And I said, I want to scrap it all and move to New York. Um, my husband was wrapping up his business school program in a different state. So he was sort of uh, in flux and g- gathering some debt. And we just decided, I just decided I had to just do this. And so I moved to New York um, without really, I had met the Shazi once, but really hadn't, didn't know what I was getting into. So that was the, that was the sort of what life looked like at that time. Okay. What were you getting into? How was the journey? Well, I mean, we had five different apartments, I will say. It was kind of a, um, so the actual living structure of living was very difficult. Um, I, our first place, we moved into a neighborhood um, where a friend of mine had a had a deal on an apartment. And it turned out that it there were so many cockroaches in this apartment. We, My husband and I set up a tent in the living room and slept in a tent for six weeks um, to avoid the bugs um, like while deal. we were sleeping. So that was, you know, just what you got to have those gritty entrepreneurial stories. That was one of them. Um, I would, we, Shazi had a friend who had a um, factory in Williamsburg. And so he was making fresh soup there at this factory. We thought we'd make fresh baby food at this factory. I would ride my bike there. And it was um, very clear soon after we got there that we could not make baby food in this place. We joked that we had silent partners and it was the rats that would come out at night. you know, all over the the um, location. So I, there was just a lot where we thought we were making fresh baby food. Turns out we couldn't actually make fresh. Needed to do frozen. Raising money was a challenge. There were, you know, kind of every challenge imaginable. But it was always, there was always hope and there was always something to be building and something to um, be going after. So Sounds a bit like the uh, baby food version of Ratatouille. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. So it's fresh in my mind. I watched it the other day with my uh, with my daughter. So uh, yeah, the idea of all the rats co-creating it sounds disgusting the way you say it. But in my mind, what I just watched, I'm like, I'm sure it was delicious. Um, <laughs> we didn't actually make baby food in that factory. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say you're a very clear caveat right now that never happened. Um, <laughs> it did not happen. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. 
Banter automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanter. Just head to vanter.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So what were what were the most important lessons that you, you took from that journey? And I guess related, how hard did you find it to assimilate those lessons along the ride? Yeah, I think the first question that the most difficult is finding product market fit at launch. That is what every entrepreneur is going for. That is the vision that we have is that we've got this thing, we're building it up, we're raising money, we're not raising money, we're putting our own credit cards at risk. And we want to have success when we launch. And with Happy Family, our first product was frozen cubed baby food. And I would say that we just did not have product market fit at launch. We had some, re- we had a retailer um, product fit. So retailers really wanted to carry this new fresh baby food in the frozen section. Wow, that's interesting. Maybe it'll bring in new parents into the store. Um, but customers really weren't coming to the freezers in droves to buy our product. And so we convinced Target to do a 24 store test. And I remember driving around with my dad, buying up product so that we could spike the data. We bought our own products. We could spike the data, just hang in there a little longer with Target. Um, So we had a car full of coolers and we were giving out free coupons to just have free baby food to get people to try it. But I would say that that was the most difficult part of Happy Family was really living through that not having flow. And so when Rod and I came to co-found Love Every many years later, we did a lot more research to understand our customer. And, you know, we did some focus groups at, at Happy Family, but you can kind of reinforce your own vision through a, some focus groups. We did the design thinking model and we hacked it and did our own version of it with Love Every. So we found 28 families. We followed them for a year. We made them, gave them really ugly prototypes, which is the 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 goal with the design thinking method is you don't want to polish something too much. People will feel intimidated to tell you they don't want to hurt your feelings. She must have worked really hard in that prototype. So I'm not going to, I'm going to tell her it's okay. Instead, we just had these kind of gritty, ugly prototypes, but we would send out a simulation of the play kits experience. And so we send these families a box built with products that were just for right for their child's stage. We made up different versions of what you now have as the play guide in the kit. And then we would travel around and fly around and meet these families and get into their homes and discover what was it 
what was happening with their child's development? How were they feeling? What did they think of the products? And at first, I think we wondered, there's these plastic flashing lights toys, and they're just so engaging for a child. They're, you push one button, and all of a sudden, it's entertainment is happening. And we wondered if parents would really want these more organic, um, wholesome, you know, developmental products, but that are a little bit more open-ended. And, uh, and, you know, when we wondered if they would be willing to read the play guide and really tune into this, what's happening right now in their child's stage and age. And what we discovered is it was universal. We had all income levels represented. We had some families on public assistance. We went all the way up to families making over a million a year. And the universal experience was parents did want the best for their children. And so that was really gratifying for us. And by figuring out all those prototypes and refining every kit that we'd send, we would refine it. That year of testing really made a difference. And so we landed product market fit when we first launched Love Every, which was a relief. Yeah. It's interesting talking about product market fit because I've had a few companies and in my last company, I did have product market fit. Um, they say, and it's true, when you have product market fit, you know, um and uh and when everyone's like do i have product market fit or not i'm always like you don't you don't ask that question if you have it it's just so obvious um but that company failed interestingly and um i my my newer company heights which has been going for three years now so it's not that new anymore this was a subscription model um it's been going really well uh, and it's you know it's surpassed 10 million in revenue and uh, as an annual annual recurring revenue but I don't describe it as product market fit because yet, interestingly, because uh, the difference is still quite large between the feeling and the last company and this company. Um, I think one of the things that I learned that was a mistake last time, though, this is a much better business. And that's a very important thing. This is a much better business. There's margin. It's profitable. All of the things. And the last business was excellent product and went completely viral and grew super fast but it was a shocking business and so I think there's interesting things when people talk to me about product market fit it's obviously essential to grow a big brand like it really is but I've also found it to be a really fascinating thing where you can obsess over product market fit because you haven't had it and then equally, like all, like all entrepreneurs that learn different lessons from different parts of the journey, sometimes when you've had it, you realize that that can also trick you uh, into thinking you've solved problems. But actually, you know, a, a great business is a sum of multiple problems solved. Um, you definitely can't grow a great business without product market fit. That's 100% true. But it's also worth saying I definitely learned the lesson of there's more to business than just that. Absolutely. That is such a good point. So much has to come together. And it's really, it's the persistence and the passion and the business model. And do you have all the right economics, but it's also, do you have some luck? And is it all coming together? Do you have the right timing? And is it all coming together in this right moment? It's an incredible um, act to be able to bring a company to market. And I would say that, and to sustain it, we always think about when we launch a product, we're not done developing the product. And so it's that constant feedback loop. You then now have feedback at scale with your current company, for example. And now you have all this feedback at scale. And so you can research that and push on that. And what do you love and what is not working? Or how can you refine that experience? And I think that for me, that 
um, that realization that it doesn't have to be fully baked when you launch a product has been so powerful. And I would say that that's, we live that at Love Every. We love feedback. We look at every single, we're constantly evaluating our MPS score, which is exceptional at 77. We're also looking at you know our, our every survey results that we get back, the verbatims, we read them. Sometimes we respond to customers. Um, we're constantly doing research on how can we improve the products that we have in, in the Play Kits program. Often a lot of the things that a founder realizes are the things to prioritize, like you just said, NPS, which is net promoter score for anyone that doesn't know, um, they often come from hard lessons. So, and, and often we zig and zag. So a good example is something that I do that I'm quite known for in the UK is building in public. I publish everything that we do from day one and all of our revenue figures, uh, everything, including often when it goes badly. And the reason I do that and over communicate to the nth degree is in my last company, I kind of forgot to communicate well with investors and, you know, a couple of times a year and I was just a lot more immature and things were going well. And then when things went badly, I suddenly started having to communicate. And obviously the reaction from people was like, why are you just coming to us when there are problems? And I think there was a like surprise, right? And I think that that is a very common trait of first time founders get swept up in it all but you know my reaction to that was i'm just going to be ultra transparent this time around that's going to be like my way of approaching it i'm interested therefore if things like your obsession with retention nps even you talking about product market fit these are all things that you feel like were failings from the first business that you were like really keen to develop and grow from and put into practice in this business yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, there's a dashboard that we look at every morning. We look at how many new subscribers we got the day before, how our retention metrics are performing, how we, you know, we think about our MRR, monthly recurring revenue, and we're constantly looking at all these numbers. I think that it's so also easy to to forget the intuitive and to forget the human aspect of the business. And so I try to hold a place for you know, analyzing, obviously, the business from a metric standpoint, but also really analyzing the business from a human perspective. So I actually got, I get the play kits shipped to me to my home, even though my children are well out of the age band. So I actually just got a new shipment of the baby kit, the looker kit, that very first play kit that a parent receives. And I'm like, I think that the, the, black and white high contrast ball looks a slight bit gray. And so I'm texting, you know, a Slack, uh, one of our, our partners in manufacturing and it's organic cotton and maybe we're having trouble with the saturation, but I'm obsessing over, is this high contrast enough for a newborn? Are they going to be able to track this? And then I'm also just taking in the experience from an emotional perspective, reading the guides, thinking, imagining that I, you know, had a newborn and just, um, thinking about the business, not as numbers, but as a human experience. And I think that that can be very powerful to experience your own product and to think about every touch point that you're having with your customer as being, as creating more trust, creating more meaning. Um, we're really there. We want to partner with you and your darling two-year-old to feel really good about this stage of parenting and um, and feel connected to you know, have those awe moments. I had no idea she was going to be so interested in playing with water in this super sustainable rotating sink where the water just cycles through. I had no idea she was going to want to do that for 45 minutes at a time. It's unbelievable how engaged this child can be in this activity. And it's that discovery that we want to be there for, and we want to create a platform for that. So I would say that, you know, there's, there's a lot of analytics with the business, but there's a lot of also emotion. 
Talk to me a little bit about MPS then, because um, it's actually something that we're quite obsessed with at Heights. And uh, I don't think any guest has ever talked about NPS from an experience point of view and why it's important. So actually really great opportunity. I read some of your notes on NPS and uh, even though I think I'm quite good at it, I was like, oh yeah, this is, I mean, you sound like you take it more seriously than me. And I already thought I took it quite seriously. So I want you to inspire our listeners who might not know or could even, they do do NPS and they want to do it better. Yeah. I mean, just to define NPS, it's a net promoter score. And it is specifically, would you recommend Love Every to a friend? And so the you know, that, that's a very core question. It's really the essence of, of where, whether you have something that's worth sharing, whether you have something that's, that you feel so good about that you would be willing to recommend. For us, it's a bit complex because some people think that economically they say, okay, you know, maybe I would, I love this experience. Would my friend really want it? Can they afford it? Do they feel, you know, like they're as in tune to their child's development. So there's a sometimes there's a question around a, a translation to others with our business. And I think that one of the interesting things, just as a side note, is that we have a very broad demographic. So we have in the US, we have 40% of our customers make less than $100,000 a year. Um, almost almost 50% of our customers do not yet have to don't don't have a bachelor's degree the parents and so we do have a broad customer base but I think sometimes people think oh I don't know if I should recommend this because it's so special and I don't know if my friend is going to really be willing to invest then if you think about their reporting we we track it on a trailing 12-month basis so we think about shifts I think you can over index and obsess over one number. Oh my gosh, last month it was 80 and now it's 77. What does this mean? And you do need to ground yourself in statistical relevance. And you know, I think creating a trailing 12 month average is really useful in that way because you can be very emotional when you see that number go up or down. And the other thing that I that we love to do is read the verbatims of any detractors. So why are they not recommending it? What what is about this experience that's making them not feel good? And we recently had a couple of more detractors that were saying that they couldn't get in touch with our customer service quickly enough. And so that's a a, a red flag for us. You know, we we pride ourselves on offering the most kind of human centric, loving customer service you will ever experience, and um, and then we were slipping behind on some tickets because we had some um, other business, we had some launches that went better than planned. We had a lot of demand for some things. We had a lot of people emailing us, and so we had trouble keeping up. And so it's that that kind of nuance and reading the the, the verbatims on why can be so powerful, both for the positive of why they love you. And also for anyone who's saying that they don't love you, read read their text. Say say you know, and, and then respond to them. Come back to them and say we have a process where we then go back to each person who is attracted. I'm so sorry, you know, we're going to work on this. Um, we thank you for helping us be better. How important was NPS? You know, at Happy Family, for example, is that something you really focused on? We did not. You know, can I be totally honest? I had no idea what the letters N, P, or S stood for um, at at Happy Family, so that was not on our radar. I think that it's also something that was a little bit more distant because we were selling to retailers who were then selling to the end customer. So we didn't have this direct personal relationship with our customer. Um, Rod Morris, my co-founder, instituted MPS tracking in this company at Love Every, and I'm so grateful to him. I think it was a very good move, and we. We started early and we've continued to track um, throughout the course of the business. And it's very helpful to see that, you know, make sure that you are um, doing well with your customers. It's it's a very important metric. 
Before we move on to some more details around Love Every, so with Happy Family, how did the journey end? And what was a particular highlight? And if you're willing to share low light from that journey? Yeah, I mean, I, the highlight was just, I think I would, I would do power, I did a lot of power posing at Happy Family. I did a lot of like, uh, what I desire is on its way. I, be, I believe in myself. You know, we had to do a lot of that because it was really, really hard to build that company from scratch. We did not, my co-founder and I did not know what we were doing. And we learned a ton along the way. And we felt like we had momentum in a lot of important places, but it took a while for us to get to that product market fit, as I said. What really started to scale was our our puff snacks and our yogurt melts and our pouches. Those started to really take off. Um, and that's when we found Flow. Um, but we had so many challenges. The being able to imagine the impossible, that you're going to sell a company for hundreds of millions of dollars that you started from scratch, from nothing. I would go to sleep every night dreaming that we were going to be a global company, that we were going to be in service to you know, young families that needed the better food alternatives, to feel that, to feel, to go in a park and see our shape of puffs crushed in the in the um, playground was so rewarding. Um, we sold the business. Uh, we got it to um, 72, sorry, 60, 63 million in revenue and sold it um, for a large multiple. It was really exciting for us. It was incredible. It was um, amazing. I would say that it felt like we did the impossible. It just, it's almost surreal. The hard part I would say was my relationship with my co-founder emotionally was was hard. Um, I, str- I struggled personally with that. Um, I think co-founder relationships can be, you know, amazing and they can be the best and they can also be the hardest. And so um, that was hard for me to feel, um, just work through a lot of the feelings that come with working through a partnership. So I'd say that that's the, that was the, the low light. The highlight was, is what we created together. I just have so much appreciation and admiration for what we built together so what did you learn from your experience about co-founding because i'm listening to the story of your first co-founder one meeting obviously i mean goes without saying but i'll say it but it's so obvious to listeners you're obviously both brilliant and at the very least capable uh obviously i appreciate not everyone has to be brilliant to be an entrepreneur sometimes you're just like more resilient than everyone else but you're clearly both exceptionally capable usually people wouldn't advise people to start a company the way that you described how you just you, you started it because trust and you need it's a relationship right and you but it's more complicated than most relationships because you can get out of most relationships quite easily um so it's really most akin to a marriage where getting out of it is extremely complicated and so a lot of people just carry on um what did you learn from the experience of how you chose your co-founder and how you uh, kept the relationship going through thick and thin that helped you decide what the right framing was for a co-founder once again in a new company rather than just going alone. Yeah, well, I fundamentally believe in co-founder relationships. So I could not have done, first of all, the Happy Family was my co-founder's idea. So there was no way that that business would have been what it was without without her. And 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 then I would say us together, we were we really had a lot of strengths as, as co-founders and as partners. We really... Um, and I would say that, you know, it's it's so hard to decide to take that leap of faith to partner with someone. So um, I was really grateful that my co-founder of my first company was up for doing this with me. You know, she she took a bet on me. And I would say what got us through was just humor and 
Um, and the, the fact that she was very loyal to me financially and, you know, we, we had a lot of kind of, we had some core loyalty there. Um, and I, we decided to be 4951 partnership. So I was the 49, she was the 51. My title was COO, her title was CEO. And, uh, and it was, she did not want to think about, um, us as necessarily co-founders. She wanted to be the founder. And then um, my role was uh, COO. And so as the business scaled and became more successful, I would say that for me, my ego started maybe, um, I wanted more credit. I wanted some credit for from an outward perspective. She was very much the outward face of the company and I wanted to be more acknowledged, I would say. And it's hard to look at yourself and, and say, gosh, like, I wish I didn't have this ego. I wish I didn't care. Uh, but I did want to be mentioned. I did want to be included at times when I wasn't. And it it became hard um, to, to look at myself and to realize that and then also to ask for support there and, and have it be a challenging question to ask. And so I would say when I went into my co-founder relationship with Rod, Rod and I have known each other for over two decades. He's married to my very best friend from growing up. And uh, and so I just have so much trust with Rod. And when we began, I said, we, you know, we decided we should definitely be 50-50 partners because when you come up with an idea, that's so important. And it's also so important to honor the creation of that, bringing that idea to life. And really when it think about co-founders, it's usually it has to be a consensus anyway. You can't really say, I'm going to pull my one person, you know, I'm going to pull my 51 hat or card and just say, we're, we're not going to do this or we're going to do this. That, that just creates such um, dissent and it really erodes what you're building together. And so it really always, whatever partnership it is, it usually shows up as 50-50 anyway. And that comes at some people give you advice and say, don't do that. Don't, don't have, you know, somebody needs to call it. Somebody needs to have a vote, a final vote. But I think that it's the process of working together and really working out those debating and, and, and struggling together to figure out what's best for the company is where the beauty can come and where you can really build something successful. So with Rod, um, we, we decided to create the company 50, 50, and we really work to honor each other. I really am, I know how hard it is to be a number two. And so I take that with every interview that I do. I, I've worked to honor him and mention him and think about him as my co-founder because we really co-created Love Every together. It is amazing uh, the self-awareness that you clearly have. Like it is uncomfortable to talk about I have an ego. Um, I also have this conversation with people and I think it's really, really healthy because I think um, usually the front person is the person everyone assumes has an ego, but everyone has an ego. And it's so fascinating because, you know, it's almost like it's possible to do yourself a disservice by not admitting you have an ego. Um, and although we'd all love to be but atop a snowy mountain, zened out all the time, it's just not practical. And when you've created something and put a lot of effort in and you want to be seen, it's actually really normal. And I think it's really healthy for you to admit that publicly because in every relationship, pretty much in business, there's co-founders, but it's not 
however hard you try, it's super hard for it to be evenly distributed in the awareness side, 50-50, maybe in shareholding. But one will always take the lead, I think. And actually, sometimes that is still better as well. You know, otherwise a lot of like competing voices and noises. So there's probably like half our listeners who are that person and can relate to the challenge as well. And actually your point is, you know, you just want some recognition, not none. Um, I also really relate to your point on 51-49 versus 50-50. That's absurd. Um, pulling weight on all decisions because it's 51 is, it makes no logical sense. There are some some decisions it makes more sense for you to have. Anyway, thank you for sharing that. Um, last question on that before we move on then. So I read your notes on, you said something along the lines of it was very hard being a second time founder and raising money. How much stigma? I know this is like a, a weird question because obviously on one side it's like, look, I appreciate no one's getting their little fiddle out for me now that I've made millions and I'm a successful entrepreneur and I'm going again. But is that kind of a weird reality? Like it's very easy for people to feel sympathy for your problems when you don't have money. Yet when you have money, that's like the one taboo that is impossible for anyone to try and understand that you're still a human being with emotions around. And so people just don't bother. They just skip that part because they're like, well, she's rich, so who cares? So the main thing that I'm trying to get to is, A, why start another company instead of just relax, enjoy parenting, enjoy your youth, don't stress? And two, can you talk to us a little bit about why you think it was actually hard to raise money and start the second time? Yeah. I mean, the first one is, is just this company is just I love everything we're doing with this company. It's just coming from a, just such a deep sense of um, wanting to give. And I just want to give parents this experience. I believe so strongly in the early years as being so important for development and felt like I had had this experience with my own children and just really wanted to share it in a, in a meaningful way. So it's coming from a very core place. And my husband would ask the question, are you sure we want to do this again? Um, so if it was a financial answer, it, it is the, that's that's not what this is. This company is about for for us. It's very much a purpose and life purpose question. I would say the second thing is as related to identity, if you have a company, you've been successful, it's almost or you've just been successful at anything. Let's say like you're a really good attorney and you're a partner at a firm or you're and you're wondering about starting a business and like wanting to do something different. It is very vulnerable to imagine failure um, when you've already had success. And that's just such a human thing, right? Like we just we it's almost it's when you don't have anything to lose, you just try it, see what happens. But when but when you've had some success, it gets it grips you a little bit more in your sense of self. And so for me, raising money the second time and going back to investors who've gotten a 20 times their return on the first company and seeing doubt in their eyes and having them wonder, is she? did she just get really lucky the first time or does she really have it? Could she really make something of this new company? I don't, you know, nobody really understands the depths of your business model. They're really betting on you. And so to see them turn us away and say, nah, I, I did really good the first time. I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to skip the second company. Um, I, I think she, I think she got lucky is where I think, you know, our minds go and assuming that that's what they're thinking. That's hard. That's vulnerable. But I think that then if you have that deep purpose and you really care about something, then you just overcome and you just keep pursuing your, you know, 
that you just go to get the the next yes or no. I mean, you do the normal fundraising process. But there is something a little bit emotional about if Love Every had been a failure, it would have almost tainted the whole happy family experience. Oh, she she just got really lucky, right? You know, how much of how much of what you said, so how much of it actually being hard to raise is based on direct feedback you had versus like assumptions you're making. So I'll tell you my assumption. It was not what you said, right? And that's why I'm challenging it. I'm so curious. My assumption is um, people like VCs especially sometimes struggle to invest in second time founders because the hunger isn't quite there. Like there's a lot to be said for you having to make it work. Like you're all in, it's your first company or your second or your third, but you haven't made it yet. And the hunger is there and you've got some experience and you just need to win. Um, I've got some VC friends and they've explained to me there, there is that reality. Like the, you know, people try not to be judgmental, but bias comes out in all sorts of unconscious and practical ways. And that's one of them, right? Like, is this person going to need it enough, want it enough to make a huge company? Um, so how much of that do you think was a factor or do you think it was all based on what you said? So the, the question, I think that's very interesting. The question on that we were asking was a, we raised a, from a lot of individuals at Happy Family. We actually had no institutional capital in that business. So it was all just people that we met along the way and people who knew people. And so there were individual decisions being made. Now, I, there's all sorts of reasons why somebody might invest or might not invest. And that gets down to the emotional part of fundraising, right? That there is like a, an emotional current of belief in yourself and belief in what you're bringing to, to the world, even though it isn't anything that anybody can see, touch, experience, feel yet. It's, it's an idea. And so it's very vulnerable to have a company in your mind or in, you know, in prototypes or some kind of version, but it's not what you ultimately are going to create. One day you might feel great about it. The other day you might not, depending on what somebody said about it. It's not out in the world yet. So it's not, it doesn't have its own energy. Um, I think this, so this question of whether VCs, you know, the hunger in the first time, a second time, third time entrepreneurs, I think is a really interesting question. I think that you can see the hunger in someone when they're really building something out of a deep purpose and they're just care so much. And I care so much about this company. Um, and we, we do, we all do here. And so we're doing this out of just a real, um, sense of self and wanting to give back to parents and be a part of, of modern parenthood and helping children reach their best potential. So, um, I think that, that institutional investors in love every have seen that passion in me and, and in Rod and in our team. And they know that this is something that we are not going to stop until it's the best, biggest expression possible. Did you have to do an earnout? How long did you spend in between each companies, like ending the last, starting the new? Take us a bit through the transition period in your life from ending one journey and starting a new one. Yeah, that's a great question. So Shazi and I each sold 40% of our ownership and happy, happy family when we sold the company. And then we signed on for a three-year earnout. And I stayed an extra six months because Ashazi was having a, another baby and so wanted to cover for her there. And so that three years was a hard time. It was adjusting to being owned by another company and having the priorities that I believed for the business being different from what maybe the other company felt. And, and it wasn't in any sort of 
um, philosophical way. It was just more day to day. Like I had to make sure I responded to all the emails from Danone before I responded to my team. Right. It's like, cause I was trying to build trust with them and that was hard for me to, to, to balance that after really feeling so independent for so long. And then over time you realize like, there, I have, we have such a capable team that the team had it. And then you start to become irrelevant, but you're still supposed to be there. And I just, so I would go through waves of, that was when I created the climate, co-created the climate collaborative and really trying to still give back to the company and give back in ways that were, you know, ways that felt entrepreneurial or fresh or new. But um, the team was really taking the reins and, um, and you start to feel like you're not use, useful anymore. And but you still need to be there. And that feeling can actually harm your self esteem, I think, in a way, right? Like you just don't feel as capable. You're like, well, like, they don't need me anymore. Um, that there, There's a grappling with that feeling too, right? Where you're like, I'm not needed. Wait, I built this like, I'm not needed. Yeah, you're not needed. <laughs> you're not adding a whole lot of value. Um, and so but then the three years needed needed to be there. I think also meeting the financial threshold to sell the remaining 60% was not easy. So we wanted to just get back to the same share price as what our investors got paid out and what we had gotten paid out for the 40%. We just like we went from wanting to kill it on some kind of earnout, you know, potential to like let's just get to baseline and um, that was a good company. That was a good price for the business, and that you know was sweaty at times meeting that threshold. But we 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 did it. We got there. Moving into Love Every. So, what was the period that you had between? So, you finish, done your three years, you've got your exit. Uh, big holidays, fancy cars. Like, did you treat yourself? Like, did anything exciting happen? No, I just I I had well, I had my third child. Who yeah. I have my bee, who I just adore all my children. So I was so you know excited to have had um, be in 2015, and um, I think you know I definitely in New Year's when when it was the last sort of day for me to be, I, I celebrated with my husband. You know, just uh, it's like okay, I'm going to honor my future. But I think for me, it was really about building my self esteem and thinking about the future for Love Every and like believing in myself as somebody that can hold a vision and and accomplish that vision. I think. My co-founder before really was the vision keeper. She was the inspiring one. She was the one that, um, and I was the doer, the COO, the operational person. And so for me, building up my sense of self as a person who can manifest an idea to life and and tr- and um, appreciate myself for that, I did that all the time at Happy Family, but I wasn't that wasn't my identity, if that makes sense. Um, so now just being able to kind of believe in myself, I think, feel like that. So I did, but no holidays, no, I, my husband got a Tesla. Um, we, we, um, so that was exciting. Yeah. But, and then, and then we, we, we've recently moved. So, you know, it's sort of like growing into, um, new space for our family, but I would say there was, um, it was a lot more about getting really excited about building Love Every was sort of that transition time. I whirled right into Love Every right after Happy Family. So talk to me about starting Love Every. Like, did you go straight to investors? Like, how much did you put in to start with? Like, how does the practical side of starting a business in a very different way feel? Because this time you knew how to start, build, sell, exit, the whole thing. And most first-time founders don't get the full experience in one go. 
So you have unique experience, like broadly speaking, and now you're ready to go again. So how did you look to practically start it? Yeah, so we so we did put in some of our own money. Rod and I decided to partner. We that was the biggest thing was just securing that partnership with Rod was the most important. He had so many other options of what he could do with his next steps in his career and he chose to work with me. So I was really excited about that. What and was then his, what was his deal? Who who is So like, he what's his career? He, yeah, he had been working at Opower, which is a recurring revenue company that's all about helping people save energy. And so it was a mission-driven company based in DC, had two um, exceptional founders that built that that company, and he was on the executive team. He wrote the S1 for going public, He, um, but he wasn't a founder, so he was hungry. He wanted the founder experience, and he built the company from just $10 million in revenue up to over a billion-dollar um, IPO, but I think that he was craving something, building something himself from the beginning. And I was hungry because I had not had my vision come. I had never experienced a vision that I had from the beginning come to life. And I felt so passionate about Love Every. And so we came together and um, and each invested a few hundred thousand dollars. And we started just legal expenses, figuring out. We wanted to build. We actually thought we tested building an app, a parenting app. I was really excited about doing this like kit experience, but we were testing that and we were wondering if there was a digital component to to it as well. We started building our first product, figuring out manufacturing. So yeah, we were just both in our apartments or our our houses, sorry, our houses with, you know, just thinking about building the company together and we would just meet and and then we soon decided that we wanted to raise outside capital. And I think that's a question. I knew that I didn't have enough capital to bring this this second company all the way. And there is something kind of magical about taking in investor money because you do learn. It's a test of yourself, your vision, what you're putting forward. You then build a community around you that's all wanting to wanting you to succeed, whether that's individuals and angels or institutionals later. Um, I think that you can become a little self-referencing if you finance it yourself. Um, it also can be really exciting and you can you can have an even bigger win at the end. But again, it wasn't, for me, it wasn't quite as much about the financial big win at the end. It was more about the experience of building a company. And so we feel really grateful for our investors and our board members. And so, yeah, so we went to go raise that first angel financing round and started working on prototype for a play gym. And um, yeah. Surely that was there. easy, no? As in the first angel surely, round at the very least. It, the angel round, I mean, it came faster than than Happy Family for sure. But I'm telling you, there were people that said no. And I was like, what? I, I, you, It's always it's happens that way. You always meet where you're like, this person, I'm sure this person will invest because they have the capital. They know me. They, And you know, you can never tell. You never know. That's the the the. The journey of fundraising is so can be so surprising at times, and you really just have to continue to believe in yourself. Do they go on the list, Jessica? It's a little naughty list somewhere. <laughs> there might be a few. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, I can present as very um, warm and caring, which I am, and I'm also very competitive. So good. That is the perfect question. I, ca I can't help it. Leading. I'm just. No, that's great. Look, that's a perfect question for leading up to my next one. Um, who are you more competitive with? Other brands that you admire and you think that you could be doing as well as them, et cetera, et cetera, or 
you in your last business and where you got it to and you know the things that you're doing differently this time I would say that we've surpassed the success of the last company so I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of all the experience I had and Rod and I are have a much bigger vision for Love Every so that felt felt like even from the early days our vision was bigger than where we kind of um had where I had ended at Happy Family I would say for competitiveness and thinking about other other companies in the space we have really built something unique and and I think that it's hard when you build something unique you really do need to grab market share and you need to expand internationally and you need to invest and make sure that your marketing platforms are 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 really giving that that beautiful product that's best foot forward into competing and your best bet to build a competitive moat is to get distribution and get get customer love and you know we have so much love from our customers which we which fuels us now just now i think we're starting to see some some people sort of picking away at some of our the way that we approach books for example or the, even the stage based learning we we have some competitors in different parts of the world and we're tracking that but i think that for us um it's about staying really focused on what makes what we are doing next our pipeline and how we can really listen to our customers and continue to co-create with them that is really the magic of love every is being able to listen to our customers and and learn and do better even better than i think what we put out at first because as i said the the product development process is not done when you launch a product it continues after you launch so um in terms of like value creation and i've obviously i'm sure you would agree but i'll put words in your mouth uh, your last valuation was $800 million, right? So almost a unicorn. And not many businesses in the world that have achieved such dizzying heights of valuations, value creation, etc. I guess, how do you feel with that pressure almost to deliver? Because what I would say is it still sounds like a very different, it's a different journey, right? Your last business, you exited for six, you had $67 million of revenue, you were saying, and you obviously had a really great exit. But um, I'm assuming you didn't raise over $100 million with $67 million of revenue, otherwise much more stress, stressful exit terms. So there's just this like, you said you're competitive. I'm trying to get to the crux of like, how competitive are you with yourself as well, right? Because when you raise $100 million at $800 million valuation, uh, you're really, you know, you're really pushing your vision, right? You're really pushing yourself to go and do great big things. And I guess my question is, do you see that as like the last funding round? Do you see that there's like multiple funding rounds to come? Like how big do you see this getting and how big does it need to be? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it needs to be, I think we need to serve children globally in early childhood. There is so much white space. There is so much need. And no company is really partnering with parents to help them feel confident every step of the way of their child's development. And so we now cover birth to age five, we're expanding those age bands. There are so many more ways that our customers are telling us that they want our partnership and our help um, with, with parenting and feeling like they're giving their child the very best start. So since children are children everywhere, we have a global opportunity. And since early childhood, really this, this concept of human potential is maybe one of the most important concepts that we can think about as, as people is where is our next generation being invested in and where are they going to take the world that feels really important and feels really big and then i think about you know as far as a company goes from a business model perspective we continue to have a 
core of this create co-creation with our customers. We have core love. We have you know financial that's the retention metrics are incredibly strong, best in class. Um, you know we have r- a really good business, and so I would say that when I dream at night of love every, I am pushing myself harder to dream bigger. So think about multi generational companies that are in service to a need. Um, that is that is the vision that we think about for Love Every, and you know, I think about um, expanding access to Love Every to children who in the U.S. who are um, on public assistance. We think about how we can expand you know, to all children. Um, we think about you know how we can expand up to different ages. Again, think about different geographies. So it feels like there's a ton of headroom for us to go and grow. And um, I think for the from the next stage of the business, IPO is 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 one of the things that we're considering. We would consider that maybe in 2025 or a little bit beyond um, when the markets change and when our business has grown a little bit. I think for us, it's about being patient with, you know, if you look at Lego as a company, we just love Lego. We have a lot of Lego in our home. Um, or you look at some of these, you know, I, I think about that because it's in our space and it's a platform and there's so much that can be done with with those bricks and there's so much brain growth and development that can happen. That company took a long time to get to where it is. It's, it's been three generations. And so I think sometimes when you build a company, you launch it, you know, we launched an early learning program just five years ago as of this week. And so you get impatient. You're like, wait, it should be bigger. It should be bigger now. And I think that for me, it's about ad- adjusting those expectations and saying, we're building it the right way. We're building it, you know, one step at a time. And we're not trying to get too taken by the pressure that financial markets can give you or the pressure that investors can give you. And we have great patient investors. They've been wonderful and happy with our growth. But, you know, if you grow 20 to 25% year over year, for you know, fifteen years, that can really add up, and so I think that that's the sort of mindset that I think we're we're thinking about and trying to make sure that our everything we do is purpose purposeful. That there's a point and there's a reason why we're doing what we're doing for families, for children. Amazing. What's your biggest challenge, personally? Um, well, a few things come to mind. One is just continuing to um, just evolve as the company evolves. I really want to make sure that that I am of service to this company in all of its stages. And so that means growth in certain areas. I need to, you know, I, there's certain areas where I need to just start to um, accept, I think structure and accept the inevitable. If, if it's from a legal perspective or from an HR perspective or whatever, you know, you, you have to evolve yourself with the company. Um, from a personal standpoint, I think it's just being, you know, grateful and present and balancing my roles in life. So I'm a, I'm a daughter, as we talked about. My I'm very close to my parents. I'm very want to be a good wife to my husband. I adore my husband, and it's hard being married to me. Um, I have you know like multiple companies, and I'm just I've got an engine and it's running, and um, and so I think that that can take up a lot of space in the family. Um, being a present mom, I just adore my children, and I want them to know how important they are, and and finding time with all three of them to. You know, there's the more you have, the you, you you have your love grows, but your time doesn't, and so it's um it's a balance, I think. And then and then my love for this company, and I wake up in the morning every morning thinking about love every. So it's just very passionate about what we're building here, and and balancing that with all these other roles. How have you found the ability to balance that? And I guess I am I'm really curious because people ask this question a lot, and it's quite a triggering and annoying question sometimes because it's like I just do. 
But uh, that's a lot. I'm just wondering if you actually do have a very rigid schedule, for example, or something that we can learn from when we have many plates spinning like that. Yeah, well, I don't know that I'm, you'd have to ask my children and everybody else in my life how, how well I'm doing. But I would say that for me, I it's about what I'm not doing. So I I love also, so it's endless, like I could... I could make the kids a great meal tonight. I could, I could um, make sure that their cubbies are organized. I could, you know, run a like things could be tidy, and and we don't have a tidy home, and we, I don't make, you know, we we sort of scramble together the dinners often, and we have a we have a nanny who's very helpful and feels so grateful to her, and she helps us a lot. Um, but I wish I was doing it myself. Like if I was doing it myself, I would have put. I would have changed, you know, that their lunches would look slightly differently. Their the meal wouldn't look quite like. It's like you just, as a mom, often you want to do it all. You just want to own it all. You want to control it all because you care so much and you love so much. And so it is about letting go some of some of those things. So, you know, letting go of having, you know, shopping for my daughter's clothes or you know making sure that she's got you know the right size underwear or whatever it is. Like I, I just, I, I kind of do let go of some of those things, and that's hard. It's a compromise. But I think in the not doing, you're also creating space. And then friendships, you know, are hard to balance at this stage. I, I would love to spend more time with friends. But um, so I, if, if I rank order my, you know, children and my parents who are getting a little bit older and my husband, you know, it's just like so hard to be everything to everyone. And then the CEO role. So trying to trying to balance it. But there is, you do have to kind of accept that there's some things that you just aren't going to be able to do your way. Yeah, I really relate to a lot of that. And um, I guess conscious of your time, because, you know, all the things and you added an interview on Secret Leaders. So question that I'd love to end with and I'd love your perspective on. What lessons do you try to pass on or teach uh, other entrepreneurs that, you know, helped you on your journey? What is something that you could really pass on based on your experience? Yeah, I would say just don't let customers become numbers. Don't get too up in your head about um, all of the sort of fancier parts of business, the things that sound good. Get really gritty and real about what it is that you're making, creating, the service you're providing. Make sure, test it with your customers. Get really gritty about that testing experience. I, The other morning, we were having some questions on conversion. I just woke up kind of six in the morning on a Sunday. And I was like, I got to just buy our product. I got to go through the flow and record it and make sure on my phone that it's working and on somebody else's. It's like, just stay really close to the customer and stay really um, connected to what you're building and the why and how that's helping the person that's receiving it. Amazing. Jessica, thank you so much for your time. I know it's limited. We're really grateful to have your insights. And uh, to anyone that has a kid who hasn't yet experienced Love Every, please do give it a go. It's beautiful, beautiful product and experience. And I think I heard you say, um, what, or read, read in your notes, you know, that you've got two stakeholders, really, the parent and the child. So you're always having to think about those two things from NPS, from retention and everything else. And I strongly relate. My daughter is, you know, not fully saying loads of words just yet, but I'm sure if she could communicate, she would express the same as I do, which is fucking great. Oh, Dan, thank you so much. It was wonderful being with you. Awesome. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode and found it useful, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It makes a real difference and we genuinely love reading what you think. We read every single review. 
Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we'll be back next week with more lessons for entrepreneurs and leaders. This episode was produced by Alex Graham, Ruth Edwards, and all brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon. See you next time.